Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. We're in the studios of the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA on a rather warm 29th of July. And the year is, of course, 2022. This will be Membrane Biochemistry Lecture number 24. And we were talking about membrane lipids and association with various disease states last time. We had talked about the toll-like receptor, and we had talked about caveosomes. And we've been on that um, subsection of these lectures now for um, at least four episodes. So last time I mentioned to you sialic acids as being a carbohydrate, a nine-carbon carbohydrate, which is linked to lipids that are part of the caveolae as well as a component of normal cell surface membrane in eukaryotic uh, cells. And the sialic acid residue is actually one of the components of pattern recognition in association with uh, immune synapses, both innate and acquired. And I also told you that sialic acids have been co-opted, that is their metabolic uh, biosynthesis have been co-opted by certain bacteria, some of which are pathogenic in humans. And we mentioned that one of the sialic acid residues, a specific structure, is indeed the one related to Legionnaire's disease. So I mentioned it briefly last time, and I thought, why not go ahead and talk a little bit about this bacterial pathogen, because it's still all membrane biochemistry. Therefore, it's all good. (laughs) Okay, so Legionella uh, are gram-stained negative rods, and they're usually found in aqueous environments, and so they can be found anywhere, anywhere where there's plenty of free water. If you inhale an aerosol containing Legionella bacteria, there is a, there's a possibility of developing a severe pneumonia. And that pneumonia has been termed Legionnaire's disease for historical reasons, because there was a meeting of Legionnaires in the United States. Those are people that belong to a legion, and legions are just organizations centered around various kinds of activities. That's why it's called Legionnaire's disease. Anyways, they became very ill. So... Now, the way Legionella works is to establish an infection, the bacteria have to adapt to growth in a somewhat hostile environment, and that would be in the host, in the human. And it does so through unusual structures of macromolecules that build the Legionella bacterial cell surface. So, details. The outer membrane of the cell envelope is a lipid bilayer. And it has asymmetric distribution of phospholipids and the inner leaflet. And then you have lipopolysaccharides in the outer leaflet. The major membrane forming phospholipid of Legionella is actually still phosphatidylcholine. Of course, that's a very common glycerophospholipid. So PC synthesis in Legionella goes through two independent pathways. The typical methylation pathway using acid methionine and the other one is phosphatidylcholine synthase where you have a nucleotide activated diacylglycerol 
as one of the substrates. So the utilization of exogenous choline by Legionella actually leads to changes, molecular changes in the composition of membrane lipids and proteins. That sequentially then influences the physiochemical properties of the bacterial surface. That particular kind of phenotypic plasticity we often see in pathogenic bacteria. And so Legionella fall into that class. In fact, this is part of the Legionella cell envelope, which essentially will be the determining factor for what kind of interaction the bacterial will have with macrophages. Now, when the bacteria are pathogenic, that plastic interaction with its cell envelope and host macrophages results in a diminished production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And that will then modulate the subsequent interaction, uh, whether or not there are any anti antimicrobial peptides or proteins, which are launched against the bacterial infection caused by the Legionella. Now, the surface exposed outer chain of Legionella pneumonophila, SG1, LPS, is a homopolymer of 5-acetoamidino-7-acetoamido, 8-O-acetyl-3579, tetradeoxy-L-glycerol-D-galacto-non-2-ulosonic acid. That last part there tells you that that's a sialic acid residue. And it's probably the very first molecule, molecular component that contacts the host cell and essentially anchors the bacteria into the host membrane. So this particular lipid uh, is somewhat unusual for bacterial outer membrane. And there's a specific function of the individual LPS regions. And it will make the important contribution to the ultimate antigenicity and pathogenicity, which will follow. Now, I remind you, this is basically from last time, that sialic acids are found in animals, but you find the relevant genes for their synthesis in bacterial pathogens. And they were picked up via, um, the, the genes were picked up via um, gene transfer from the mammal to the bacteria. Okay. And we know this because the genes have been isolating the bacteria and they are similar to in structure that is in sequence to the genes found in the host. And this is not unusual because genes that come from uh, human to bacteria via plasmid transport and then fusion of the DNA into the bacterial genome are somewhat common. Okay. So, so this is gene transfer from the host to the bacteria. And then, then what happens when those genes are expressed, it then results in some kind of um, phenotypic uh, contribution to not only preservation of the bacteria, but a component of its virulence factors, which then turn right around and infect the host, you understand? So these sugars that are synthesized from this pathway that was hijacked from the host human or from the host mammal 
to the bacteria. They have, um, again, that particular nonulosonic acid. Okay. And I told you last time that the 5,7-diamino, 3,5,7,9-tetradeoxy-D-glycerol-D-galacto nonulosonic acid is called legionaminic acid. I told you that's because it's linked to Legionnaire's disease. So now I'm giving you the rest of the story, which is what I promised. Now, the cell envelope of Legionella pneumophila is typical for gram-negative bacteria. It consists of two distinct membranes. There's an inner and an outer membrane, so an IM and an OM. And there's, of course, they're separated by the periplasm. The periplasm contains a relatively thin layer of strongly cross-linked peptidoglycan, of course, with a lot of peptides, a lot of protein. And the peptidoglycan is composed of muramic acid, glucosamine, and a few amino acids, glutamate, alanine, and then an intermediate in lysine degradation called mesodiaminopimelenic acid. And it has a very specific molar ratio. What is that molar ratio? 0.8 to 0.8 to 1.1 to 1.7 to 1 of all the structures I just mentioned to you. So the outer membrane is going to be asymmetric with an inner leaflet mostly composed simply of phospholipids. And then the outer lipid composed primarily of LPS, of a bisaccharide, of which the nonulosonic acid, that is the... Um, the sialic acid residue is going to play a major role. So the asymmetry is critical for the outer membrane permeability. LPS cons consists, of course, of three regions, the O antigen, the core, and the lipid A. And in bacterial genetics, I'm sure you've learned all of these uh, features. And in fact, I've taught it myself many times. So the lipid A region anchors lipopolysaccharide molecules to the outer membrane. And it does through hydrophobic bonding of the acyl chains with the phospholipids. And that constitutes the inner layer of that membrane, obviously, if it's hydrophobic. In addition to the polypeptides, you also have various aspects of cell physiology, which include the virulence factors which allow for infection of the host. These are lipids that are highly specific for interactions to the host cell. And as I've been saying now, three types of lipid-containing molecules are present. You have phospholipids, the lipopolysaccharide, and the lipoproteins, or the proteolipids. Okay? So, using scanning electron microscopy, these various structures on the outer membrane and the inner membrane before you ever reach the periplasm, have been determined. And again, you have an O-specific chain, a core region, and a lipid A region. Okay? And the lipid A region um, is primarily acetylglucosamine. Okay? That's what most of it is composed of. And KDO, that particular 3-deoxy-D-manoactyulosonic acid. Remember, that's a sialic acid. I'm sure you recall. Right. And then that legionaminic acid, that's on the outer leaflet of the O-specific chain. That's the part of the 
membrane, the outer membrane that's going to interact, because that's part of the lipopolysaccharide, it's going to interact directly with host membrane. Okay. So I'm just reminding you, all that is just more. Now, to make phosphatidylcholine, um, which is essential for Legionella, um, you need to do one of two things. You either start off with CDP diacylglycerol, remove the um, nucleotide, and then transfer the choline. And the choline can be transferred from phosphatidylcholine or from sphingomyelin. But this is a way of either using choline to move back and forth between PC molecules. So this is phosphatidylcholine synthase or between, and then the other, the other, uh, the result of that would also be diacylglycerol, right? Because that would be the remaining product of that reaction. Or um, choline can be picked up directly as free choline and added to the CDP diacylglycerol to make phosphatidylcholine in the membrane. The more common way, the way that hum the way that it's done in mammals as well, and also in plants, is you start off with phosphatidylethanolamine you and you methylate it, uh, and then you make monomethylphosphatidylethanolamine, methylate it again to dimethylphosphatidylethanolamine, and methylate it one more time. That's a trimethylated ethanolamine, and that's choline. Those are the two pathways, the PCS pathway and the PMT pathway. And both of those are active for Legionella. So I don't want to go any deeper into that right now. Uh, I may later. I just wanted to give you that brief introduction that the actual um, disease-associated lipopolysaccharide on that bacterium called Legionella is a sialic acid residue whose biosynthesis came from a gene trap from host back to the bacterium, right? So it was a host transfer that's happened sometime during evolution. And that evolution could be happening in modern times, obviously, because bacteria are capable of taking in DNA into um, plasmids. And because of non-homologous recombination, that DNA could be inserted into the bacterial chromosome. In fact, it's real easy to introduce genes into bacteria. And we, we do it in the laboratory all the time because bacteria are the workhorse for making genetic constructs. So let's go back to the TLR uh, process, total-like receptor. There was a study conducted recently that showed the TLR expression is suppressed by epigenetic events. And that's via the methylation of the DNA and the histone. Now, we talked about this last time. So I don't want to remind you that that methylation pattern will control the expression of a toll-like receptor. And that toll-like receptor is responding to DNA in the host. And it's responding to DNA in the host in a way that can then result in an immune response. But DNA methylation of the TLR promoter in gastric cancer, expressing TLR4 at high or low levels, 
is actually the mechanism underlying the control over toll-like receptor for transcription. And I told you when we finished last time, I actually got cut off here, the toll-like receptor for silenced cells show increased MECP2, that's methyl CP2 binding, and TLR4 upregulated shells show enhanced SP1 binding to the TLR4 promoter, thus regulating how the TLR4 can either promote or inhibit progression of gastric cancer. Okay, so we went from bacterial genetics <laughs> to uh, cancer, and we're doing this. I'm doing this to illustrate that the same molecular events like a toll-like receptor or like a sialic acid that play a role in um, normal physiology, normal biochemistry, can play a very significant role also in pathobiochemistry and then result in pathophysiology. Okay. So paper published in Frontiers in Immunology in 2020 was a paper about toll-like receptors. Let's get into this a little bit. Remember, these are membrane-associated receptors that are responsible for an inflammatory response downstream. So TLRs are innate immune receptors. They're specialized in detecting conserved molecular patterns or their pattern recognition receptors. So because they recognize patterns and pathogens, they are pathogen-associated molecular patterns. And self-derived, these self-derived molecules are released upon tissue damage. And so then they're called damage-associated molecular patterns or DAMPs. So the TLR family, which is just nothing more than a large group of transmembrane glycoproteins, is comprised of at least 10 members in humans and some 12 actually in the murine model. TLR4, which we were just talking about, was the first one identified in humans. And it senses, as we just said, LPS. Lipopolysaccharide, of course, is the major component of the outer membrane of gram-negative bacteria. So it, that exhibits potent, the LPS, potent immunostimulatory activity, just like the sialic acid, right, that we were just talking about. So TLR4 also recognizes danger or damage-associated molecular patterns released by simple tissue injury. And for example, high mobility group box one, heat shock proteins, reactive oxygen intermediates, and indeed extracellular matrix proteases and their breakdown products. Okay. So TLRs recognize bacterial and fungal components. And these are specifically TLRs one, two, four, five, and six. They're expressed on the cell surface, which would be necessary for them to be able to recognize those components. And that's true while sensors of viral and nucleic acids, such as TLRs 3, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, some of those are murine, right, are localized within endosomal compartments where that TLR4 can also be translocated. So the TLR can be in the plasma membrane or it could be in the endosome. 
Now, the association of TLRs with specific ligands then initiates whatever the downstream intracellular signaling is going to be. And typically with TLR4, TLRs in general, there's an adapter protein called MID88, MYD88. Now, with the exception of TLR3, uh, that signal for that particular uh, toll-like receptor is a protein called TRIF. Okay, or a toll response initiation factor. Now, so you have mid-88, you have TRIPS. Now, all of this will culminate in the induction of a pro-inflammatory uh, induction. And that will occur because of the transcription factor NF-kappa-B. NF-kappa-B activation or antiviral molecules via the interferon regulating factor routes will be induced. Okay? So any aberrant TLR activation could result in chronic inflammation and indeed autoimmune disease long after any pathogenic attack has been resolved. So a significant amount of evidence suggests that TOLAC receptors are lit because of that are, are linked to several diseases because of hyperinflammatory responses. So sepsis, asthma, the whole constellation of autoimmune diseases, unfortunately also cancer, diabetes type two, intestinal disorders like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, cardiovascular diseases of all different um, colors, and neurodegenerative disorders as well. And we already know which ones those might be, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, prefrontal dementia, Lewy body involvement, things like that. Okay. So the very, very, very deep amount of involvement there. So macrophages and microglia actually, which are the resident macrophages in the central nervous system, will recognize multiple receptors, right? So the recognition will go through the NAL, NALP3, that's associated with the A-beta protein. The RAGE complex, which is also resu resulting in, active, uh, in an interaction with the A-beta protein, but also with the HMGB1. Cytokines and chemokines will bind to their specific receptors, then turning on macrophage activation to the M1 lineage. Heat shock proteins, apoptotic cell remnants, as well as that same protein HMGB1 and also A-beta uh, protein, right? And even LPS, as we just said, will act as recognition sequences for macrophages, macrophages and microglia, excuse me, via the CD14, which we talked about, the co-receptor and the TLR4, either on the cell surface or endosomally, okay? So I'm not gonna talk right now about phagocytosis, regulation or output. I did just a little bit about recognition that induces macrophage activation, resulting in a pro-inflammatory response. And this includes resident macrophages, circulating macrophages from the monocyte lineage, and microglia resident in the central nervous system. Okay. Now, bring back caveola. Caveola obtain a specific cellular environment. And upon doing that, 
they generate unique protein-lipid and protein-protein and lipid-lipid interactions. Numerous proteins that have caveolin binding motifs are called CBMs. Will associate with caveoli via the scaffolding domain. Remember, that's called the cave one or cave three scaffolding domains or CSDs. So CBMs associate with CSDs. Again, the CBMs are caveolin binding motifs. You see, it's a lot of pattern recognition that goes on here. So numerous proteins with putative CBMs will immunoprecipitate with caveolins. And they can each be dysregulated when you lose caveolin because they still possess the CBM, you see? So endothelial nitric oxide synthase actually interacts with KF1. And you can, de you can determine this by immunoprecipitation. And it becomes hyperactivated in cells and in animals lacking CAV1. And its activity is selectively modulated in vitro and in vivo by peptides corresponding to the caveolin scaffolding domain, the CSD I just introduced you. So that's how endothelial nitric oxide synthase is regulated. Now, at least at this level, right? Cell-cell contact with CAV1 being in association with KVOI, yes. Now, these peptides show striking functional effects when added to cells or when they're administered to animals. And that suggests a direct interaction for caveolin signaling. In fact, it's called the caveolin signaling hypothesis. So phosphorylated CAV1, which we've already talked about, I'm just bringing it back into the discussion, will interact specifically with many downstream targets. So like with many signal transduction cascades, you start off with a phosphorylation or sometimes a dephosphorylation. And the product of that phosphorylation or dephosphorylation, that, that whatever it was, so a phosphorylated CAV1 in this instance, will be the initial signaling substrate. For all downstream processes, because it'll target those downstream processes. So, in the case of mechanical stimuli, the phosphorylation of CAV1 is directly linked to transcriptional upregulation of other caveola components through a pathway involving epidermal growth factor 1 such that signaling from the KVOLA will provide long-term protection against physical stress. It does so by making that very sturdy and durable KVOLA into the plasma membrane. Remember, they're detergent resistant, plus they're also resistant to reactive oxygen, temperature changes, all those other things I told you about. Because of that tight packing, remember around that amide linkage in the sphingosine, um, base of the sphingolipid in association with phospholipids, other sphingolipids, and then if there's saturated fatty acids directly with cholesterol. Remember, that was the compacting of the membrane and making multiple layers in the membrane so it's very resistant to transmigration, for example. Now, in the case of this uh, whole mechanical stimuli, 
I told you that that's linked then to subsequent physical stress. So phosphocab one has been shown to interact with tumor necrosis factor, receptor associated factor two, that's TRAF2. Phosphocab one also interacts with the C-terminal circinase, also known as CSK. And last but not least, the row A GEF, that's a guanylate exchange factor, VAV2. And that last protein connects cytoskeletal rearrangement in response to bacterial infection, which because it's generating KVOLA downstream from that, helps prevent infection. Okay. So insulin, of course, also uh, phosphorylates cabin one. We talked about that, I think, two, two episodes ago. And that's associated with KVOLI, and this phosphorylation stimulates the translocation of cabin one to the nucleus, okay, where it's involved in transcriptional control and epigenetic phenomena, also covered in previous lectures. So now this entire pathway is embedded in the upregulation also of ribosomal RNA transcription, which means you're going to get a global transcriptomic increase. So that essentially increasing ribosomal RNA transcription is essential for increased ribosomal biogenesis. And that can often simply be in response to stress, but also in response to nutrients and growth factors. And this will tie back into the A, uh, to the mTOR pathway, AKT mTOR pathway. Okay, I'm not going to go into detail of that right now, but I have in the past. I'm, I will subsequently. Don't worry. I always do. Now, the loss of the cabin one causes an imbalance in ribosomal production. Obviously, 